Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everyone, my name's John Bleasdell, I'm a writer and film critic, and today I'm going to be talking to Tom Schoen. Tom was the first guest ever on the Writers on Film uh, podcast, so um, I'm really happy to have him back. He is the author of many books, most recently The Nolan Variations, about Christopher Nolan. He's written books on Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino, a whole bunch. And today we're going to do something special because we're not talking to him primarily to sort of talk about one of his books but because he also wrote a brilliant book called Blockbusters I thought it would be interesting if we had a conversation about the state of Blockbusters today in the age of, of Covid and uh, following the pandemic and because we have some boss Blockbusters which we can talk about such as No Time to Die, Dune, uh, The Last Duel and I think that's I think we maybe talk about some other things, but those three films in particular uh, are what we're going to talk about. So there will be some spoilers ahead. So if you haven't seen those films, you might want to skip one or two of those parts. One other thing I have to say is that Tom's based in New York and the ambiance of New York can sometimes be heard in the background. Uh, I hope it doesn't impair your enjoyment at all. Uh, I don't think it does. I actually quite like hearing sounds coming from another part of the world uh i mean the sounds you might hear on my side will be church bells and the sleepy village but uh um with tom it's it's yeah it's classic new york 
New Yorkerama. Okay, so uh, if you like the podcast, please remember to like it on Facebook and uh, spread the word generally. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. entering a very strange landscape for blockbusters because uh, even today I was reading a, an article by Brandon Katz all about how the whole business the whole genre of blockbusters is going to change uh, simply because they they they've lost so much money and I, huh. he was even even this year it's like 67% down on 2019 so i mean that's almost 70% less money in the in the pot Mm. How do you think it's going to go? Uh, well, I mean, it's hard to see the Hollywood giving up on them in the sense that they really have been the backbone of the business for so long now. In you know, I see them as in the they're in the middle of the boat. You know, they're fairly they seem fairly safe to me, which isn't to say that there's not going to be some belt tightening or, or there's going to be preference for this type of film over another but I, I yeah I can't quite see the blockbuster itself uh kind of you know disappearing certainly but you know I'm definitely well used to hearing that you know they're about to bring the whole thing down to its knees and you know, the death of cinema and you know that's been a kind of they're frightening things you know there's so much money and manpower and uh, investment in them that you know that, that shepherding them is a sort of scary business and it always has been um and so i think which you know it would be strange if you know covid hadn't in some way alarmed the industry even at that level um and i think we've seen that i mean i can remember thinking when dune came out feeling a little nervous for it even though I hadn't actually seen it at that point, but like, you know, it was getting good reviews and I, but I, there was a bit of me that was that, that split release that they had for it seemed very, uh, you know, so it, 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 they, the, the numbers could be quite soft. So I was relieved that the, that, you know, that it did so, you know, did well, um, well enough for them to, to come back for another one anyway. So yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a scrotum tightening time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, his argument isn't so much that they're they're going to disappear or they're going to uh, that there's any risk of them going extinct, but more that you'll still have sort of blockbusters. You'll still have those big IP films uh, at the center because he he refers to them as too big to fail. The industry just mm. needs them. There's no way the industry can go on. Okay. But, but there might be more sort of tailored smaller budget blockbusters if such a thing exists which are much <laughs> more sort of targeted uh to go towards the the streaming services and things like that rather than to um rather than the theatrical distribution and and so it's almost like i don't know maybe i'm reading into it but it almost felt like there might be a a blockbuster which will be definitely a sort of theatrical experience you know the christopher yeah. nolan the, the the bigger of the Marvel films. And then there might be sort of Marvel films or DC films, which are actually budgeted because they're really only going to go to streaming. They're not 
gonna uh, be aimed at the, mm. the theatrical so much. You know, yeah, that, that's what I was sort of extrapolating. I might be. What going... does it? Did he have any examples? I mean, what does that second type of movie look like exactly? Like the the one that's been budgeted down. That's a sort of mid budget. I mean, well, I, I, I'm just curious. It's it's interesting. Like I've for so long associated, you know, blockbusters as just inherently expensive creatures. Um, and it's sort of tied into like the reason people like them. You know, you go and see uh, one of those kind of big disaster movies by Roland Emmerich or a Michael Bay movie. And I, you know, you're literally going to some degree just to see money being spent. Like that's the attraction. Like you, you, the, the, there's something about those effects. You know that you, you don't feel satisfied unless you've seen money being spent and I don't mean that's an explicitly it's explicitly so but literally so in the sense that the production values that you kind of want and desire just are inherently expensive so it's a curious I wonder what a mid-budgeted blockbuster would look like I mean there are I mean I tell you the, the Bourne movies actually were kind of like as close to being that kind of creature as you could get I mean they were very they're the only ones I can think of really that were sort of bantam weights sort of boxing with the heavyweights you know they 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 brought in a billion dollars they competed against bond they competed against you know the bigger spectacles but in fact but for the actors actors and the you know they're not particularly expensive they were particularly expensive so i can think of the you know those films but i wonder i mean and and, and of course that's that's they're very they're very earthbound in the sense that they're not superpowers there's nobody with any uh you know sort of earth shattering so th there's that element of it so is that the kind of film he meant i mean that would be i could see those but they're you know but they're still very hard to come by i can't remember the if he actually sort of gave any any real examples i mean i i was sort of thinking of maybe the sort of second tier sort of uh marvel character uh -huh. you know the the there are they aren't the the huge i, I don't know how black Black Widow did, for instance. I'm not sure if that's that that would be an example of something which which you know had an enormous budget and and all the rest of it, but maybe didn't have the broadest appeal. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that you you would always have to look at is you'd just have to find somebody who could do the effects. Which the, the thing that makes them all expensive is the is the digital work, you know. And I'm sure there are kind of degree there are variations within it, but I, basically once you start using them, then you know you've got an expensive movie. And I, I can't Black Widow. I mean, unless they decide to do Black Widow as a kind of more of a spy, you know, uh, thriller because she is a spy. Like you know, I could see that working. In fact, it would have been a lot better if they'd done that. They were kind of aping Bourne in you know many other ways, but. Then of course they had to have their kind of big set pieces that cost a lot of money. But if you could have done without those and just made a born picture out of Black Widow, then yeah, I can definitely I, I can see that. That could work. I, I wondered why I, I remember seeing this in X-Men 2, where X-Men 2 felt very felt quite bloated and the felt it felt to me like there were set pieces that because they'd because they paid for them, there was absolutely no way they were gonna um, take them out of the movie. Because it's like, how do you cut this set piece, which, as you say, with the digital effects and everything, is, is eating up a heck of a lot of your budget. And I just sort of wonder about something like Black Widow, where you know, who's going to see a Black Widow movie going if they don't have a scene where a huge sky palace falls to Earth? I'm right, going right. to be disappointed. You know, I'm not. Is that uh, yeah. is that really you know what audiences are? going for 
Yeah, I mean, you here's the thing. It's sort of wish wishful thinking in the sense that it's there that, that what that would then require is a lot more work done on their scripts because the you know Marvel just sort of uh, are very I think you know lackadaisical with the script they just because they know that that's not really what's making them their money so they cook up these things in a year and then that's it but so they would have to go back to the business of sort of making movies essentially like kind of and, and <laughs> that's the difficult one that's the you know that's that's the one where you have to put in the years of work developing scripts and sort of working on them with producers and it's sort of that's in a way like but they've got this easy shortcut which is that they just make it expensive and make the you know weirdly it's become less risky for them to make expensive movies than it is for them to make cheap movies like the gap the the they're in this sort of weird logic and it and it makes sense that the you know it's actually safer for them to spend a lot of money which is weird but that's but they've been in that trap for like decades and i can't really see a way out of it i mean so, sort of some it's a bit like asking somebody to sort of grow younger you know like the industry mm. has sort of got to a certain level um you can't then just sort of reverse time and ask it to sort of rejuvenate and go back much as kind of critics often say oh i wish they just made movies again or i wish they wrote better scripts or you know it's always going to kind of press on so i mean i listen i hope that guy is right i hope that argument bears out i mean i you know certainly you know am as bored as anyone by Kind of most, you know, most of the the you know Marvel movies that come out. Uh, I mean, they just seem desperate for some kind of innovation, and uh, less money seems like a great way to go. <laughs> um, <laughs> like that's how you really get the discipline. That's how you get the you know the Nolans. That's how you know, they've all come out of the low the low budget world. Like Cameron, Nolan, Jackson, all those guys came out of an incredibly disciplined low budget filmmaking world and you know and to this day really i think that you can't really fault a ca- you know a cameron movie like he's very you you really see if he spends a lot of money you see it it doesn't seem there's there's much been wasted i mean that's the the feeling the, that rather sinking feeling that you get of just sort of like of 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 just from a lot of the Marvel movies of just sort of delight piling on delight piling on delight in terms of the way they look and it just it just it's sick it's sort of cloying um uh but I never get that sense there's a sort of no matter how expensive they are you know Cameron movies or Nolan movies they never sort of feel wasteful you know they don't feel like there's too much fat on them they don't feel bloated that sort of terrible sense of like kind of engorgement that you get from those sort of you know superhero films they're actually quite lean things you know so there's an art to them uh but yeah it's a the the, the ability to spend money well uh and in a disciplined way is kind of is hard as obviously to come by what do you think of the sort of the the recent sort of blockbusters that we've had the, the sort of the, the return to the cinema the return to the theatrical experience it seems that we've had like uh something that that critics have been sort of ought to be celebrating we have real auteurs turning up to, to direct blockbusters you've got Denis Villeneuve with with June you've got Carrie uh, mm. oh, yeah. Doom Bond. yeah Doom Bond and you've got Chloe Zhao doing The Eternals which I haven't had an opportunity to see yet but I have seen the the first two what, what do you think of that as a, a, a that, that feels like something different yeah definitely I mean I you know both the Bond and the Dune felt in that regard, it's quite similar. I mean, you've really kind of got very high-end kind of filmmakers at work for 
franchises in ways that don't feel like a kind of a diminution of their talents or like a waste of their time or or that they're kind of either slumming it or they're above the task or beneath the task like it really just seems to employ their talents i haven't seen eternals either i'm so um i'll sort of reserve you know any thoughts on that but um but yeah i was but you know they're very um i mean the bond film i thought like a lot of people i just you know it was just a, the first particularly the first 50 minutes of it i thought were just ecstatically good i mean right <laughs> I mean, it definitely like it, it it there was a you know I, I think i had some some you know some criticisms of the sort of middle uh, I mean, what did you think? I mean, it was it the the, the uh, did you did you did you how did it go in Italy? Well, for me, it was I really really liked it. I'm hugely invested in Bond. I mean, I've read the books numerous times, and I've seen all the movies. So I've got a, and I actually did a sort of COVID rewatch, um, like a, however long ago it was when COVID started, a year and a half ago. And I found it was interesting rewatching them back to back and just going. Oh my God, they get really rotten quite soon. It's you know, it's pretty much yeah, yeah. you know, and and all all of the Roger Moore's, which I, of course was my sort of my James Bond when I was a kid. Mm. Oh, they were they're just they're they're not even films anymore. They're just like mm. parody with with mm. action sequences, which are then ruined by soundtrack jokes and you know a mm. guy looking at a bottle and looking askance at Roger Moore and a gondola. Tramp who yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's just when he like, comes out of the out of the sea yeah yeah. yeah. Um, so I really rate Daniel Craig. I think he did something, and I know people mm. say, "Oh, Timothy Dalton tried, and Pierce Brosnan tried," but they, 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 they never. They always tried within the constraints of a, a, a still recognizably Roger Moore-ish Bond setup, yeah. and Daniel Craig just totally. I mean, and, and obviously the production team and everything totally ripped that up. And I, I really rated No Time to Die. Yeah. I thought, I agree with you. I think the, the middle's flabby and I'm kind of surprised that they were sitting on this movie for what, a year and a half after it was completed and locked and everything. And nobody thought, you know what, can we trim a little bit out of the middle? Can we just make it, you know, I couldn't work out what the baddie was actually doing. And yeah. you know, the boats were supposed to be coming to the island and we didn't get a shot of the boats coming to the island. So we didn't have a, a sense of like an imminent approach or an yeah. imminent danger. So there were a few things like that that, yeah, you can be picky about. Why is he wearing a mask if he's going to shoot everybody in the house? What's the mask for? <laughs> you know, so you, you can be, but I thought that I could agree with you that first ecstatic sort of hour and then the last hour <laughs> yeah there's yeah. still another hour yeah yeah um i just i i just thought the audacity of killing bond was kind of i wasn't surprised but i was amazingly shocked if if yeah, that makes yeah. any sense yeah no i mean that's you know it's it was very good i mean the the it's it's interesting that like you know when you when you look at the daniel craig bonds and you look at the ones that were really good, which is to say, you know, Casino Royale and this one, it really becomes very clear that the great harbinger of the future for Bond was not Connery or Moore, it was George Lazenby, because the model for both Casino Royale and this film is on A Majesty's Secret Service, which is to say, Bond in love. And it's like that turned out to be the thing that 
that's what all, all along, all it needed to do was to get rid of the, 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 the casual sex and the sexism and, the, and the, the jokes and the girls and Bond needed to be invested in someone else. And the moment that happens, the film just unfolds and you've got something that people want to watch. And like, so I can remember, yeah, so I felt like, oh, okay, George Lazenby turned out to be the guy that told Bond what his future would be, which I think is kind of interesting. It, just, it was just that one film. But of all the Bonds, I feel like that one is sort of, you know, people often, and Nolan goes back to that one as well, doesn't he, to On a Majesty's Secret Service and says what a great Bond film that was. So, you know, so definitely, I, you know, and, and Craig, I think, is, as you say, I mean, he's just, he's a serious, you know, he's, the, the, I mean, he gave that character kind of soul and, 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 and regrets and an emotional life um, and that is you know and some kind of ambivalence i always feel like the ones that are the one the guys that are, play the best bonds are the ones that almost hate him the most like connery didn't particularly was was very resentful of the role of bond by the end and cursed having to kind of come back and do me you know and, and craig reportedly has similar kind of you know ambivalence about bond and sort of oh god i'd rather slip my neck i think the wrists and do another one he said at one point but the ones that actually dislike him the most are actually the ones that are best at playing him, you know? So, you know, that's why Craig and Connery are just in their own class, I think, but... Um, yeah, Pierce yeah. Brosnan always looked too pleased to be playing him. It's like, oh, this is my, <laughs> this is my dream role. I'm, you know, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not a no, great no. actor and I haven't got much range. So this is, this is me, this is down to, you know, I yeah. can't do this. He'd, he'd, he'd wanted it for so long and then he got it. And then there was a certain amount of kind of, confusion you know like what do I do now kind of thing mm. um but yeah there, there was I think he he never seemed in command really to me there was the the uh the, the, the problem I think that he's not a he's got a very soft manner um and he's a very gentle sort of guy I mean the, the I I never kind of got that sort of stentorian bark that kind of like Bond can sometimes do you know give uh where they just sort of like you know what I mean there, yeah. there was there was there was that going on for I think for for Brosnan like he, there was something a little too um, soft about him but and you know and that couldn't be said of Craig I mean Craig just went z zeroed in very rightly on the physicality of Bond I mean he went it was two things it was kind of like the 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 his emotional life it was his soul it was kind of like how is it, how is he how, what effect are these killings having on him but at the same time immense kind of physicality and like kind of you know the kind of glory that you know, the, the, that film makes of, of his body in Casino Royale. I mean, he's the Bond girl, you know, like it's kind of like his, his, you know, physicality is kind of the thing that we're lingering on in that film. Um, he, come, he comes out of the sea like Ursula Andress and Halle, Halle Berry, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, I mean, you know, and, you know, although the Mendes films put him in a suit, I, I never, he never seemed that uncomfortable to me in a suit and I always liked him best in those Hawaiian shirts I you know I, I definitely kind of felt that Craig was sort of in some 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 level in conflict or rebel he was rebelling against some of the the you know the strictures of kind of what Bond must be and do you know the quips the suits the girls I, I you felt like this guy was a sort of you know modern enough male to find a lot of that stuff embarrassing um and he didn't and he you know and he did some of it under duress and he but he did his absolute best to kind of get as much of the sexism out of the series as possible i mean i think that's kind of maybe one of his lasting achievements far from being some high and mighty 
you know, sort of act of kind of preaching to the masses, it actually was exactly what, what had needed to happen with Bond. Like, uh, you know, it was thrilling to see him in love. It was thrilling to see him uh, sort of attached to someone. So, you know, I think his instincts were great. I, I, I would be so interested to know, like, kind of what kind of input he had on it. I would suspect quite a lot in the sense that there's something about those movies, and I, particularly the last one, No Time for Duck to Die, which seemed like it could only have come about if the director, the producer, and the star were all on the same page. Right. In other words, everybody's making this film with a single will, and they've all got the same idea in mind, and they all agree. Like, it's so rare on those films to, to get that. So there's a kind of quality of leadership around it, but I kind of, I'm, I'm keen to know... It's obviously the broccolis, it's obviously Fuganaga, but it's also Craig. I believe that there's, that when we read about it, when we find out how those films were made, I think he will emerge as a kind of, as, a, as an author. It feels that way. It feels, it, it feels like there's this, that great alignment of kind of role and script and, you know, an actor that, that, that comes about when essentially an actor is leading, you know, and people are listening to him. I think one thing that really proves your point, one thing that's really, uh, I, I remember being really struck by when I first saw it. And I saw it a couple of times because I saw it in Italian first because it was out and then they showed it on Monday on a, in English. So I, I went to see it again. When the... Uh, that moment before the song comes in, the sort of needle drop of the big song, is a really important moment in Bond films because that's a moment where the camera sort of stays on something and it might be somebody dying or it might be somebody falling or it might be... And it then merges into the into the title sequence. Uh-huh. And in this film, it's him leaving his girlfriend at a railway station and the, and the, the shunting of the sort of carriages going by. And so... It's an emotional moment. It's not, uh, you know, somebody, him giving a quip as, as he offs somebody or anything like that. And yeah, it just, exactly it, right. It just goes to the core of it, you know. And, and it's such a great bit of, I was trying to think if I'd seen that done before, where the person on the inside, on the, on the train, walks back through the carriages in order to keep their eyes on the person they're leaving. I, 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 I would like to think that that was, I hadn't seen that. Uh, that, was a, that was a nice bit of business to, to come up with, to establish that how you know, the feeling between them. Um, it was touching. I was like an original bit of staging, you know. Uh, but yeah, like it's very, yeah, I mean, the whole pre-credit sequence is very different from any of the other Bonds because it doesn't, you know, it's sort of, it's her, not him. Um, and yeah, and he's got the, you know, Fuganaga has got like his own, uh, he's got, he, the one thing I liked about what he brought to it, apart from, you know, these, I mean, obviously the guy can shoot just beautiful action beautifully and he's, you know, he really is on point with all the things that are needed for this kind of movie. But he brought a genuine sense of nastiness to some of the villains. Like I, I really <laughs> felt that they were just really up to note, really kind of, there was something genuinely creepy about them. You know, there was something very, it's partly his thing with masks. He, he likes masks, doesn't he? I remember that. But, but the sense of sort of dire goings on, you know, uh, I, I don't know. It just felt sticky with sort of something genuinely nasty. And I, I missed that. I kind of obviously the villains of, become, of Bond movies have become such a kind of, uh, a kind of archetype unto themselves, slightly laughable. You know, everybody knows they kind of talk about their plans at length. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, like the whole thing is self-parodying. You know, but I say, yeah, I feel that there was a sort of genuine nastiness to the film, which I appreciated and liked. And Spectre seemed, in the first 50 minutes, and one of the reasons I love that section so much is they just seemed like on you, like, you know, like a swarm of mm. 
you know, I, I really felt like they were just un this unstoppable force. And it's sort of very rare that you feel that in the first hour of a Bond movie. I mean, you generally kind of find out about the plot and then you see them in the sort of very, at the end, and then you have perhaps a battle and then they're overcome. But the idea that they're just on you, like immediately from the beginning of the film, a bit like the Joker actually in The Dark Knight, where mm. it's just like a weather condition that kind of moves in like a storm. And it's just sort of, you can't escape it. I love that so much. And I love the, basically them taking that building and coming down the glass and in they came. And it, oh, it was just fantastic. I, you know, like that's exactly what you want expected to, to, to be like um, and I was disappointed actually when they when they were wiped out <laughs> for that reason I was like oh no, no no you've got such a great head of steam with those guys like keep that up keep that up through the movie you know uh, don't don't transfer power yeah um, it, it, I think the series has done that a little bit too much you know no it's quantum no no quantum is actually a subsidiary of Spectre <laughs> no it's not Spectre it's this other thing it's like, oh for crying out loud pick a, <laughs> pick a story pick a route you know? <laughs> The unified theory of the, the villains, they're all in the pocket of the others. And then, you know, the, yeah, no, that's true. They, they can't get a mastermind big enough or broad enough to kind of encompass the others like Russian dolls or something. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, but I didn't, you know, yeah, you should, they should have just stuck with just this sort of, this, they're just on the nape of your neck, you know, like that was, I, that's all I need to know. Like they're just unstoppable. But, uh, but yeah, and also the idea of like Bond going, essentially working for the CIA freelancing, uh, that was also so intriguing that I wish they had stayed with that longer. And I think, doesn't, I think um, M brings him back in again about the halfway mark. And I was immensely disappointed at that. I was like, no, 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 God, I want the whole movie to be like, Bond is kind of working for the CIA and maybe he comes back in again at the end, you know, that would be great. But like, don't like hand it in like, you know, like that's that was disappointing because M was 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 a, turning out to be a pretty good bad guy too. So it was like, yeah, I like the idea of him waging, you know, in 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 basically the, the battling with his own service. But then it's sort of it's a bit like, nope, forget about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they sort of spend that a bit cheaply. They set it up really well, the 007 and everything. And then when she sort of says, you can be 007, it felt like a child sort of plot point. Now, I is it okay if you, if I pass him the, the crown? Yeah, you know, yeah like, it was sweet. It was kind, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like where was the rivalry? Yeah, yeah, it just sort of dissipated. I thought, t talking about that nastiness that you mentioned, I the... the for me, the best narrative nastiness was the was the gag uh, that sort of kills him basically, which is this: there's a poison that you're that that you can't you're you're deadly to the people you love, which is just like you've made uh, the, you've made the subtext text right there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, it's good. I mean, the idea of poison was great too. Like I, that's something we hadn't really seen much of. I think since. I think they get in Russia from Russia with love. They poison Elsa Kreb, then they have there's some poison there on the, the stabby like her shoe. Yeah, stabby, <laughs> stabby kick. That's, yeah, yeah. It terrified like, me as a kid. I hate yeah, that yeah. so much. Oh my god, it's so simple, right? Just somebody comes up to you and kicks you, and you're dead. But yeah, no, it's a but it but it is a you know classic bit of kind of spycraft, and uh, so yeah, it was nice to see them sort of expand upon that that it was surprising that they hadn't that nobody had done it before it was all nuclear wasn't it and it's um, literally it's literally see if that was roger moore he would have said oh toxic masculinity yeah right right <laughs> no, yeah, yeah there you go that's funny yeah no he would have done that's that's definitely the where it was uh 
where it was going. I mean, it's uh, it was it, it was certainly I, I I think it's very it's it's very gratifying to see kind of a lot of intelligent, talented people, you know, h- hitting the bat with the ball, you know, with some force, and it just mm. sort of really working for audiences and you know for all the sort of legitimate complaints there are about that the industry, you know, franchises and blockbuster movies and whatnot, it definitely is important to kind of call out the ones that def- that work and that, you know, and, and when there is something driving driving it, they're deserved successes. And I felt that with that. It was a, it was a, you know, a happy success. Where do you think it will go post, you know, I mean, spo- I'm, n- nobody's going to be, I'll, I'll put a spoiler thing on the, in the show notes to make sure nobody, uh, uh, complains but you know with him dying again I mean that that stunned me how much it stunned me how much that stunned me uh, yeah. I, I just think it was so well done it was like fr- it's friendly fire he's called it in it's self-sacrificing it's genuinely yeah. heroic uh, yeah and and yeah and and annihilating there's no ambiguity there's no oh well That's... maybe maybe he's, he's fallen in the the Reichenbach falls and it'll be, oh. it'll be back, you know I mean that was that definitely was I was surprising to me too that there was no ambiguity and that you actually had a shot of his you know but essentially him vaporizing and so that is interesting I mean the thing that the nobody's done but could still be done is obviously young bond in other words make it as a period movie I, I mean I've always wanted somebody to make bond as like a period movie set in the 60s um so a bit like you know Edgar Wright with last night in Soho, where you've just got like you know all those you know period details, which are just so lovely, and you've got the suits and the cars and the cinemas and the music and the I you know and Bond is I mean it, it would it would be interesting I, I like as a yeah as a six as sort of retro essentially as a kind of retro movie so they could do that they could do Bond's first missions and particularly if they're going to go for a younger guy uh, which it looks like they will then that would make some some kind of sense um but would you want to stay in that period for that's the thing it's a sort of slightly one-off thing but it might certainly explain how you get things started again you know maybe in subsequent movies it would just forget about the period detail but you'd stick with the actor and by that point nobody's really asking questions as to how this happened that was tarantino's pitch wasn't it when he you know how he often pitches stuff uh, around he he wanted to do a, a version of casino royale um which would be really true to the book and which would be period yeah that's right that's it of course that's it yeah he had that idea was that before they made casino royale that yeah yeah it was it was in the interim before craig had uh uh, that's interesting because in some ways that yeah that's well they took half of that pitch but they left the other half so yeah that that you know i mean i you know things have got so kind of uh, you know, franchises are started and restarted and rebooted with such kind of offhandedness that you really, there's no, they probably won't have to come up with much of an excuse or reason as to sort of why he's suddenly alive. You know, like these things, people are so used to the idea of kind of the multiverse and nowadays that like simply starting Bond without any explanation would almost be possible, you know, for better or worse, that's kind of, that's the the world we're in. So um yeah, it shouldn't be too hard, but yeah, yeah, definitely. That's what that's what they've done in the past. I mean, except for again, except for Lazenby, you know, this never happened to the other fella. The the you know they, I remember was it Diamonds Are Forever? There was a sort of idea of plastic surgery at some point, and uh, yeah. uh, there's a remnant of that idea in Diamonds Are Forever, but it 
it was actually in the script that he that the new Bond would get be getting plastic surgery because he's been his cover has been blown, you know. Oh, and a better wig, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Poor, Sean Connery, when he started in Doctor No, he had five wigs, and it was like one was for fighting, one was for underwater. Is that and, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Doesn't it, it doesn't look. I mean, it's good. They're good wigs. I was just reading about the. The price tag for the wigs worn by Kristen Stewart in Spencer, and I think that I, I think I've remembered this that they were kind of five grand or something each. Each wig was, I mean, a lot, a lot of money. I guess that's how much that's how much they cost when they're that good. But the most surprising wig that I saw recently was um, uh, the Mohican that uh, Robert De Niro wears in Taxi Driver. That was a wig. That was a wig. I didn't know that was a wig. That, and that's why I was so surprised because I just thought, well, it's De Niro, he's method. But apparently, he was, sure. shooting, he was shooting something else. And they, it's a bald cap and a, and a, and a, a Mohican. I did not know that. That is a surprise. That is a surprise. Mm-hmm. I don't, that's one of those things I don't want known. Can, can we not broadcast <laughs> that? Okay. I'll cut it out. I'll cut it out. That's a. That's one of those secrets of the business sort of thing where you actually think a little bit less of the people involved as a result. You're like, oh, God damn it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess if you have to shoot another movie, that's okay. I don't, it's just like De Niro. He's, he's willing to drive around as a taxi driver for a month, but, you know, don't touch his hair. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I wonder what that was. Maybe that was the Bertolucci movie. It oh, could well. have been. It could have been 1900. Yeah. 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 It could have been. Um, what, and what about Dune then? What about because Dune was, uh, you know, I keep saying that I have a th- this unique relationship with all these movies, but Dune again was another, you know, it was my Lord of the Rings when I was a kid. I was I read that book, you know, I read all of those books until yeah, I think until Chapter House Dune, the might or God Emperor Dune, whichever one, yeah, quite a lot of them anyway. So you can tell me. I mean, I haven't. So how closely does it resemble? The book is it sort of has he carved it up has it you know is it actually a fairly good rendition of it is it sort of yeah i would say weirdly that the david lynch version is extremely close to the book all that all the voiceover that david lynch yeah. uses is how the book operates because everybody's mm. thinking and they're telepathic and they're they're reading each other's thoughts through various sort of methods and whatnot so it, those internal monologues being presented like in the David Lynch movie are, are really are really close. The problem with the David Lynch movie is it gets to like the two thirds mark and it just goes, you know, skip to the end, and, you know, and then they fell in love and then something else happened and his power grew. And uh, with this one, I think it's very, very, it's pretty close to the book and it definitely mm-hmm. gets the atmosphere of the book. The one time it really departs is basically towards the end when it sort of goes in search of an ending because because you know the the book isn't uh mm-hmm. it isn't two books it's one book and the, mm-hmm. it doesn't have a natural ending in the middle and i think they yeah. chose a fairly good point i liked the idea that he's the first person he's killed and that has a sort of narrative you know that mm-hmm. he, he's passed and it's kind of quite interesting that such a big film has has such a a smallish um yeah, but, but but makes it big, makes that personal moment really big. You know, he's, yeah. he's, be- he's become a killer. You know, so he's 
uh, I thought that was great. But the bit immediately preceding that, where they go around looking for a copter and there's uh -huh. Duncan Idaho, all of that stuff was pretty much, uh, I think, was pretty much invented and was yeah, was, yeah. Was, I figured that was was put in as an action scene because they yeah, they, yeah. they needed a, they needed something big to go out on, you know. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, that that makes sense. I mean, the, the, the I was kind of braced for the ending because I, 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 you know, I, I'm sort of I was a minor complainant out of Empire Strikes Back for that, that reason. I was like, but hang on, it hasn't wrapped up. <laughs> and uh, and so and, and, and but of course, you know, I've learned to love that film. But like the but with this, I was pre I was prepped that the ending was a bit like that. And, uh, and I was braced for it. And therefore, I, I found that the atmospherics were such that I didn't mind. I kind of I felt that it had built up sufficient sort of head of steam. I mean, it's all sort of, it's all pressure and atmospherics, that movie, isn't it? Like it's sort of like the the, the sound in your chest, the, the way you feel it in your chest, it's like a physical, you know, sensation. Um, there were times when I felt a little bit like I was just being shown a whole bunch of extraordinary sights, but that the action or drama wasn't necessarily being advanced. I remember the, you know, there's sort of there's a sort of good series of sequences where you just feel this massive happening and it's it's the sound is lifts you out of your seat. And at the end of it, you sort of think to yourself, well, what's just happened? It's like, oh well, they just landed. <laughs> That's like a one-line <laughs> script. They land the ship, but it's sort of taken for minutes and it's you know, your your eardrums and you know, but and so there was less sense that I got, I, I kept on thinking about what makes action memorable. And I was thinking about like how in Star Wars, you know, when they, Han just sort of tosses the blaster to Luke and Luke just catches it and starts blasting. And this is, that's, I'm, for some reason I really remember that because it was just sort of like so great. It was so functional. It was none of this, oh, here's how this works. It was just like catch this and start and then bam, he was off. And suddenly he was now, operating at a slightly more heroic level. Luke had grown up a teeny bit the moment he started doing that. And I thought, well, that's what made that memorable to me. And I sort of maybe felt that some of that was a bit lacking in June in the sense that I didn't sort of remember much of what they did with some of these great, fantastic machines or, you know, uh, it was more that I was just invited to sort of to, to, to revel in their existence. And, and I did. But I can remember thinking afterwards, well, what did they do with this? You know, the, so the helicopter thing is a really good example of that's where he really did that. He's mastering that thing, and the, that sequence is memorable for that very reason. There's a lot of kind of, but there's a lot of kind of tech reveal in the first hour that's just kind of like it's magnificent, but it's just kind of like, well, what's it doing? You know, like, um, but yeah, it's definitely magnificent. I was sort of, you know, I was wowed by it, and up subsequently, I felt a little bit wobblier about it in the sense that I kind of felt. When I listened to people's criticisms of it, I sort of felt they had fair points and you kind of go, oh, no, that's true too. So there is perhaps a slight emptiness there somewhere, I, but it's also just such a physical movie. I, I, I do like that. And I think that his eye, design eye is absolutely fabulous. Like the, 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 the thinking, the sort of visual thinking that kind of went into what this movie is going to look like and the, what these devices are going to, what these machines are going to look like. It was all just fabulous and very Villeneuve, like very, uh, you know, it's very him, you know, um, but that kind of sanded down kind of ergonomic kind of, app. it reminded me a little bit of Apple, you know, no knobs, no, <laughs> no dials, no, no LEDs, the opposite of a film like Alien, where you're just like crammed with tech, everything was smooth, you know, it was like kind of this sort of almost eco, 
friendly body shop meets apple meets you know the, the look of it was fantastic yeah, like ikea or something as IKEA, well you know ikea sci-fi you know so it was definitely like that there was something very kind of modern about the way he his tech his love of sort of textures um you know i really felt i knew how things felt like to touch what the surfaces of that movie i mean a lot of it's sand and you know but it's like a yeah, it's like he's a, he's a really good, he's got a very sensate kind of movie sense. Like he's like, I mean, I mean, Nolan's a bit like that too. Nolan's always kind of saying, well, it's not the, not the, it's not the, the way something looks, it's the way it feels. And he's big on textures in those movies and textures are always telling the characters like kind of where they are and what they're, you know, like memento, it's all kind of what he immediately feels, you know, like that's how he orients himself. And like that's sort of us, that's sort of the moviegoer. And that's, you know, what those, he and Nolan, Villeneuve and Nolan have both kind of realized, how do you orient somebody in this huge spectacle? It's like, okay, well, what does it feel like? You know, like, <laughs> like what's the, mm. is there sand? Is it wet? Is it, what is it? So there's, that's, that's very, um, it's very, that's what they mean by immersive, I guess. Yeah, I mean, his movies have a real heft to them, don't they? They have a real, you know, there's a, the, I think when it comes to science fiction, it's one of the it's one of those genres which is the most difficult to be really imaginative and original because that's what yeah. everybody everybody is doing. So, you know, yeah. the J.J. Abrams Star Trek looks a bit like Star Wars, and Star Wars looks a bit like Star Wars now, and you know, yeah. Cameron is quite distinctive, and Ridley Scott can be quite distinctive. Everyone else is looking like them. You know, everyone else is a sort of cheap version of them. And yeah. with, with Villeneuve, he looks like something else. He doesn't look yeah. like anyone else. It doesn't look like Ridley yeah. Scott. It doesn't look like... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Star Wars. It couldn't yeah. possibly be mistaken for, uh, you know, no, oh, this right. is just a cheap version of that, you know. And it's very good because he's not, he's not, because there's something, obviously he's a, he's got this kind of maximalist sort of sensibility because he wants to make these big movies, but he's also got this sort of minimalist sensibility in the sense that he doesn't like clutter. And like, so as big as the sights and the sounds are, the, the, I, I find there's definite visual pleasure in the, the the sort of empty planes that that fill the screen. Uh, so again, the no dials, no knobs, the the, the sand dunes, the you know uh, the the just the lack of clutter. So the the sense of massiveness, but uncluttered massiveness, and it's sort of very that for some reason is very satisfying. Possibly because you know uh, screens have just got so full up 
uh, with stuff, you know, like expensive stuff to look at. And here he's giving you this massive sort of monolithic kind of site, but it's sort of simple and it's pared down and it's somehow minimal. I would very be very keen to know what his bathroom looks like. Um, I kind of like- I, I, I'm not, not going to Google that. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of feel like it would just be like state of the art, like you would it, you, voice operated, you know, you would walk in and it would almost be like an empty cube and you'd be like, toilet and then the toilet would emerge and then, <laughs> or you know or basin and then suddenly water would come but I don't know what it would be like but it would all be very minimal it would be very smooth and it would be very expensive and it would you know so that's how I kind of think of those films a little bit like kind of uh he's, he's definitely got a sensibility and there's some kind of I'm so interested in like the, there must be some politics behind it in the sense of like he's obviously very green. I, I don't know. I'm not really based. I haven't really read interviews, but he seems like he should be from those films. Mm. There's something very environmental about them. You know, I can't. I you know, I sort of think that that's this, this man has to be kind of switched on to his environment. And um, but this is all just you know guesswork. I'm just thinking. I wonder yeah. if his bathroom looks like Jared Leto's uh, sort of layer <laughs> in Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not hopefully not with Jared Leto there though that would be yeah that's right but yeah lots of, it's kind of golden lozenges of light kind of falling <laughs> you know, like you know you know as shot by kind of Deakins and it, yeah no that's very true it's Blade Runner 2 is full of these those environments and also just very very um you're a bit like you're being inside a sort of temple or something, aren't they? They're very, um, they're, they're sort of backward looking. I mean, they sort of feel old. You don't know whether they're in the future or in the past. They're sort of, it's sort of, which is kind of definitely, that's the, that's, that's, that's something that's interesting to in, in science fiction is to have it be not, because that's the problem, the things that are futuristic and that's the, the thing that everybody has to kind of somehow get around. It's like, how do you do a vision of the future that isn't sort of Buck Rogers in the 21st century? You know, Star Wars did it with, with everything being kind of busted up and junk, which is great, mm -hmm. I, you know, a fantastic idea. Like, in a way, like the best, you know, movie that's, it's like, you know, idea that sort of sci-fi movie has had about how to do it. And, th and then since it's all sort of been variations on that uh, to some degree, you know, the Ridley Scott ones are sort of, you know, that tech is kind of nice and lived in. And then you get to sort of Villeneuve and it's just sort of feels ancient. But I mean by that, like the civilization, it feels like it could be like civilization could be ancient. Well, it's kind of mid medieval, isn't it? It's got, they're all barons and they're all the Lanzarat and the, right. all these. I mean, I, there was a bit at the very beginning where the sort of the thing of the, 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 the ambassador comes down, the sort of, uh, ramp of his ship and it's carpeted and it's just like wow <laughs> you've got a carpet in your spaceship you know? oh my god I didn't see that that's, a, that's interesting you know they're, they're, they're using wax seals and stuff and it's it, I think that goes with that tactile yeah um, you know this is a this is a world where people still melt stuff and you know yeah uh, that's true they still write to each other. There's not there's not many screens in this, you know. That's right. Yeah, there you go. That's an interesting. That's definitely. Yeah. Is it set in the in the? Is it set in the future? It is, isn't it? It's yeah, it's massively in the future. It's like a hundred thousand yeah. years in the future, sort of thing. Yeah. So things have kind of cycled, gone through sort of several cycles. 
but even the fact even the fact that the the MacGuffin is like spice you know it's like they're 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 going after salt as a commodity or uh you know it's yeah and the other thing that evoked for me was I mean a lot of kind of you know things do is just sort of fashion some of the sort of the look of fascism you know there was a lot of kind of Lenny Riefler style in some of those arrivals that you know the, the 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 army is in perfect uniform lines stretching to kind of infinity and and whatnot and of course you know that's I think very conscious he's he's depicting a kind of genocide isn't he and he's evoking the fascists the German fascists so it's like um so that was definitely that was a that was an interesting kind of design element of it but yeah it's sort of it's yeah he's definitely got an eye and he's definitely got something new to say his eye is new so to speak so yeah, he's, he's he. I you you do want him to make a. Uh, I I want him to make something small again though, because there is that slight danger now that like he's made the 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 suspicion the slight suspicion that this movie doesn't quite dispel that I had from Blade Runner to twenty forty nine was that the sort of cinematography was kind of you know was it was almost directing the movie and that there was sort of it was a sequence of fantastic just cinematographic coups you know like just these amazing environments and um that are revealed to us and um and that that the the actual thing stringing us along you know was actually pretty meager but the but these fantastic set pieces so different kind of set piece from the marvel films in the sense that they're much more like these sort of church-like environments where you just enter and experience them but nonetheless a kind of set you know a set piece sort of syndrome and you kind of you want him to kind of definitely not let that get the better of him i mean that could it felt like it almost was with blade runner there was a sort of something a little bit empty rattling around in the center of that Oh yeah, I, I I totally. I think the. I mean, Blade Runner is a film that I loved when I first saw it, and it took me a, a couple of viewings to realize how bored I was while I was watching it. That it was there's, yeah. there's a real boredom aspect yeah. of, because he just can't. He has no economy when it comes to story, and there's no yeah. sense of like, look, you don't need to see him get out the car, go down the corridor, go up the lift, go into the, knock on his door, go go through the door. You can you can you can skip a bit there. You can just yeah. go, you know, you can just go a little bit further. And, yeah. and I think with Dune, I think it worked better with Dune because there was more of yeah, an epic scale. So you, you, the, the pageantry and all the rest of it is part of the story. But I do think he is a director who can't, or at least, a, I was going to say, he he's not really interested in set pieces. I mean, there's, there aren't any... Action, no. Yeah, there aren't any real scenes in the in the film. I mean, the most compelling scene that I think back to is the one with the John Gabar needle and the box of pain. Mm. Is a really stunning scene, and it's very simple. Whereas yeah. the the invasion, where everything gets blown up, and Josh, uh, what's he called, um, Brolin, mm. is running and commanding a thing. Mm. That, that there's no, you know, if Peter Jackson was doing that, that would have been a five minute battle. That, sure. you know, that, that would have had a mini narrative within itself whereas yeah. in in dune it was just it was more or less like uh, uh, it sounds to, I'm be, it sounds like i'm being too negative i'd say it's more, it's more fancy wallpaper but but it's not it's definitely not telling a mini story there it's not interesting yeah. narrative potential that's interesting i mean i think you might have you've definitely hit on something there like in the sense of like 
his conflict isn't necessarily the thing driving him, whereas it is some, someone like kind of Dirac Jackson or Cameron, they're, they're very fascinated by how you win, um, how battles are won, tactics. And I don't necessarily, yeah, I don't feel that with Villeneuve. It's sort of um, immensity is definitely interesting. And like kind of you saying, you know, the, the Baron arriving, I was like, how many of scenes in the movie are about arrivals? I mean, there's the movie arrival he made, but like, things arriving <laughs> like it's almost like his the thing he most enjoys entry into something you know like uh, entrance ways and and portals and arrivals and you know that's his thing it's sort of like a there's something almost ambient about it like his his basic movie would his his platonic movie would just be somebody passing from one vessel to the next <laughs> you know it would be like that's the and a sense of sort of escalation and arrive and you know uh, you know transcendence and he's got a very he's that's maybe that's the word he's very there's something a bit he transcendent about him and i'm not sure that it's great in the terms of making kind of satisfying action or getting us on the seat of our you know, the edges of our seat you know in terms of suspense you know will indy get under the the descending rock door in time that kind of stuff doesn't excite him too much i don't know how that will be solved in the second part as well because if it i mean the second part i mean the book was very very influenced by lawrence of arabia and the second part has a similar sort of trajectory of about it's about a person becoming sacrificing their humanity in order to become a leader you know in the same uh -huh. way you know and uh, and and becoming distant and and kind of untouchable um so mm. i wonder and and kind of victorious okay it's kind of a triumphal march it's not like he mm. you know it's it's the obstacles in his way all it, it's full of bits of, of people who is this boy oh no he's beaten us you know it's right. full of those right. moments well i mean you'll know it from the david lynch version i, I guess yeah i mean it's like um yeah i i think i mean i I'm I'm expecting the second part to be a little bit more narratively satisfying. Um, there was definitely a sense of sort of setting up, setting his balls in motion for this one, and uh, you know introducing us to everybody. And but yeah, the story had was just getting started. Really, I guess in narrative terms. I mean, they're on the run. That's how you know that's sort of just a lot of time to get there. Yeah, because he's really it's about as you say, like kind of him out of his environment and into the desert environment and that ex his exploration in that world is kind of the story essentially we've just got there <laughs> so <clears throat> but yeah i mean i don't begrudge him kind of cutting it up into two i mean it's sort of uh i mean i was certainly kind of hooked enough to sort of think oh i'm you know i'm gonna look forward to this the next one um and yeah i was just glad again that it was uh there's a, a success although i you know i was frightened for it I guess a lot of people were just going, you know, this is on HBO Max, but I'm still not going to, I'm still going to go see it, um, which is kind of cool. They're sort of saying, how can I get the best, most out of this and buying theatre tickets? Do you, um, do you think there was ever a, a real possibility that it wouldn't, they wouldn't, I, I got the feeling that they were downplaying, they weren't announcing it because they didn't want to publicise that they it was actually half a film. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I I, oh, you mean you're downplaying the what the the well, if, no. Well, if they had announced before the film 
was released, if they had said, and we've greenlighted the second film, people would go, well, why have you done that? Well, because it's oh. only part one. And so even the title part one comes up on the screen and isn't included in any of the sort of publicity material. It's not on the poster. It's not. Uh, it's, so it feels like, and it also feels like this film would, I mean, it, imagine if they said, right, sorry, didn't make enough money. We're not doing a second one. This film would just be an absolute. But I think that, I mean, I could be, listen, what do I know? But I think that that was a possible possibility, of course. Right. I mean, you know, like the, nothing is uh, guaranteed and nobody's going to force them to make something if they think they're not going to make any money. So to my mind, no matter how much he sort of said part one and part two coming soon, folks, like it really wouldn't have mattered if they, if it, had, if it hadn't made enough money, they would have just cut him loose like they did with, you know, the girl with the dragon tattoo, which I think is marvellous film, you know, the, the Fincher version. And um that's that, that that was it. The, the Golden Compass is another one where it's it's definitely this is just the beginning. Nope, nope, that's all you've got. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's you know. So I think so. Yeah, I I, I you know what? Maybe they had given him some guarantee. I mean, certainly in like the in the sort of fuzzy environment in which we are find ourselves. It's a you know the communication between Warner Brothers and the filmmaker is possibly a little different. Maybe the expectations are a little different. Maybe there was some assurance of, you know, this doesn't have to go out of the park, but it does have to do this. You know, um, we're aware that we're releasing this on HBO as well. Therefore, we're not going to expect that. You know, who knows? But mm. it's sort of. But yeah, I'm sort of. I'm. I'm certainly pleased as an audience goer just at least he's been. He gets to do, do another one. I mean, he's just too good. I, you know, he's he's a he's a very interesting director. I think I want to go back and see Arrival. I just have such good memories of that film, um, and it's kind of got better in my you know afterwards. You know, like kind of sometimes films don't, and sometimes they stay with you, and sometimes they they don't. But that one, some that, that one is kind of definitely calling me back again. Yeah, I think it's got everything. That film, it's got this. Yeah, the, the music, the story, um, the yeah. original Ted Chang story is great, but but the mm. film is a real improvement on it. It really brings out something else. So yeah, no, yeah. I, 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 it holds up. I've seen it multiple times, and it, and it definitely holds yeah. up. What what yeah, are you yeah. are you looking forward to? Anything that that's sort of on the horizon? Any any big films that are coming that you're you know you're you're keyed up for? I, I saw the trailer for West Side Story the other day, and I, I just found I thought, oh, it's got a very high school musical vibe. I'm not even sure what a good version, you know, what the good version would be would look like, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of kind of. I mean, Spielberg is is such a, you know, he's like kind of a John Updike. He's like so endlessly facile. His his skills and filmmaking skills are so great that he you know he can sometimes sort of do films that are like you know it's just the equivalent of riding a unicycle just to show you can do it like you know like it's, <laughs> it will be an amazingly made film but the question of whether it needs to exist or we're calling or there is we're calling for it to exist you know whether it has an urgent reason for being is another thing or is it just sort of something for Spielberg to kind of do um, and a good you know an interest for him interesting kind of way to use his time and talents um, but otherwise was was there kind of was this thing you know was it was it crying out to be made I don't know um, 
that's the question I have over it a little bit, like kind of why. Um, I'm sure it's going to be dazzling in so many regards. I mean, it's very, it's, 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 he's in an interesting period. I mean, the, the, the things that, the things that bode well for it are that he's very, um, I've liked all the movies that he's set in the fifties that, you know, he's done. I mean, this is different. It's a musical, but he's, he's, re he's revisiting a kind of period that has, you know, given us also Bridge of Spies, which I saw again the other day. And I was just sort of, I was like, why didn't this film win Best Picture again? Like, it was so good. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's so satisfying. Just, just amazing film, script, Coen Brothers bringing a little bit of satirical bite, performances, Mark magnificent, yeah. I mean, direction. And you know, just an amazingly satisfying film. Um, I kind of, and I can't remember what won that year, but I, but I, but of course, it doesn't have, it doesn't, it doesn't hit any, it doesn't tell the Academy what they, it doesn't show them the future, you know, like it doesn't mm. sort of uh, say, this is how we're living now, this is the state of the nation, this isn't kind of where we are. It, it, you know, it, it can't be dressed up as sort of something new under the sun, so to speak. But what, did, what did you think of The Post as, you know, one of his more recent? And oh, yeah, again, yeah, love that, love that. And, you know, you know, very, you know just a immensely satisfied. I mean, that, I think they'll, they'll look back on him sort of making these films and just think, God, he was really kind of putting out some really excellent... Uh, I mean, I, I, I felt, again, everything came together, the performances, the story, the script. I mean, and just very tight as well, like not over long. I don't know what the, the running time of that is. It didn't feel to me like over... A, an hour and 50 minutes, just like Bridge of Spies, I think is pretty like, it's about the same. I mean, that's just a, that's an amazing, he's very economical. And uh, so, yeah, I did, so I'm just trying to think, I mean, what else is out there? What's coming with this? I mean, I've been sort of looking at- There are things, oh, the, the, the new Matrix film is the, is, a, is oh yeah. something I keep seeing a trailer for and- yeah. A little bit no, like West Side Stories, like, oh, <laughs> okay, all right, are we going back there? Yeah. I, I've only, I only just saw Bound for the very first time uh, two nights ago, and God, that's, that's a good. great movie. That's yeah, such a yeah. Neat little neo-noir, you know. Yeah, yeah, terrific. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the Matrix thing, it could be anything, really. I mean, I sort of, the the first, the it, you know, the second two was, was where I think so disappointing that there's a sort of, there's a slight weariness about this and it, can it escape the fate of those because the basic premise is so uh, permissive uh you know it's so lax it's so it encourages such laziness um you know that you're kind of i can they put the genie back in the bottle again can they kind of summon discipline from that idea i don't know uh, you hope so. And certainly there's going to be a good hour, <laughs> the first hour of, <laughs> of re-exploring that world with these characters now older. And that's going to be fascinating as they're, you know, they're called back to it. I can easily see that being a good hour of, of, of cinema, you know, but yeah, it's sort of, there's a question mark over whether they can, you know, it's like a kind of a, can they unpickle the gherkin? You know, like it's kind of like, can, <laughs> can they get back to being, can it be a cucumber again? You can try. So it doesn't help that he looks so much like John Wick in the, 
in the trailer. It's like they haven't sort of thought, right, let's really distinguish him from, you know, let's cut his yeah. hair or do something. It's like, it's yeah. like Harrison Ford turning up in Blade Runner 2049 just wearing whatever he was wearing that day, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And so, yeah, there's that. I mean, the other good, I mean, Batman, I think that that looks interesting. Um, I think that's a kind of good idea that he's come up with um, in terms of, again, that's a kind of noir, very much seems like a kind of noir period styling, which kind of is, you know, the 30s, 40s, I guess, but like kind of the, mm. that's kind of when the, the character first kind of emerged. And that's a good idea. Whether he, you know, you sort of hope it doesn't get too blown out of that, actually, because you sort of, there's a, there's an immediately going to be a, a tension between, you know, noir was sort of never, it, it never sort of lent itself to sort of bloat in the sense that it wasn't, you don't get huge sort of set pieces and they, you never get a noir that lasts three hours, you know, like it's very, tends to be very kind of fleet and kind of economical and kind of straight to the point. And there's sort of that kind of writing and you hope that it doesn't get kind of hijacked too much by the blockbuster writers. You know, there's the, the, the sense that something needs to be bad, you know, that if you have a set, it needs to be blown up and you know, that, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was thinking. I was thinking about that when I was watching Bound. Uh, I remember you saying uh, a previous, uh, our previous conversation, talking about the Coen Brothers setting a template for how, uh, you know, filmmakers should go in, in in terms of their careers, and and you had the idea of doing Blood Simple uh, as your calling card movie seems to have been repeated by loads of filmmakers, including the Wachowski siblings. That they, uh, yeah, you know, that they, they, they. It's it's almost like. I think David Putnam said something about you should make a horror movie as your first film because it'll it's, it'll be cheap and it'll be it's yeah you, know, you can show all your your skills off and I think noir does a similar similar thing definitely yeah I mean a, t a plot twist is the simplest and cheapest kind of special effect in that sense like it's the biggest jolt to the audience that isn't a sort of massive explosion or that costs a lot of money um, so you know and yeah you get that I mean then Nolan's first film following is similar. You know, the usual suspects, similar, you know, all these people like start with these kind of crime thrillers. Oh, Reservoir Dogs. Kind of, yeah, Reservoir Dogs. Uh, yeah, so the, you know, uh, the, they, the, and they're very, and they're very disciplined and they're very kind of, um, they have to really work on those things and, you know, sort of shave the edges, sand them down and, you know, <laughs> tinker in the shed for many years, getting those things to work well. Yeah, it's definitely a shame. You know, I was thinking it's very, um, you know, there's such a thing as like, there's, there's nothing like first films because when they, when a filmmaker is a, is a nobody and they are setting out to kind of be somebody and to charm us and to entice us, but, you know, like there's something about the massive like effort that they put into those things that's to charm and to entertain and to sort of, you know, that gets lost once they feel they have us. It's a bit like a relationship where, you know, the person is a, uh, they seduce and then about three, six months in, they just get begin to get bored with the relationship. And I kind of <laughs> feel like that. I feel like that with like filmmakers sometimes that once they have us, something magical goes out something something goes out of it for them they don't they they like I, if you if you ask tarantino to make his name like none of the movies that tarantino has made recently although i did like the last one but the other ones could have made his name for him 
you know, as calling card movies, they simply wouldn't work. And so I, that's very, you know, that's so disappointing in a way, like kind of not, Reservoir Dogs is so economical and it's so, it's, 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 it's so seductive and it's, but as I say, I feel like now he's got me and I, we're both, you know, <laughs> there's a certain amount of kind of boredom and are both our parts and um do we still want to go through with this and you know should we talk about breaking up it's like a kind of like this those conversations sometimes they can feel a bit like that and it's sort of uh, but yeah the first movie test i often think like would this this celebrated filmmaker if they then gave me this film as their first film would it have started the career would it have jump-started the career that i know they've just had and very few of those films pass that test you know like they're all there's a certain kind of laxity kind of sets in um would the french dispatch of of you know uh, well, watched wes anderson yeah i mean it's interesting i mean like they're the discipline i mean it's he's such an interesting case i mean he's like um he's like kind of I think of him as a bit like Malik in the sense that like they're just making like one movie and um and we get like new installments of the movie every year or so here it is and now it's got you know Colin Farrell in it the next time you see it it's going to have someone else you know like that yeah. that's how it feels and like kind of he's very you know exactly what they're going to be and they're kind of there's a slight sense sense to kind of overlook he has kept the standard up I mean they're very beautiful things but you can, I find myself getting bored by them. And I kind of look forward almost to the time when I can rediscover them and kind of go, oh, aren't they great? <laughs> you know, rather than see them refresh. I kind of find I like them better when they're in the rearview mirror and I can look back on this nice row of kind of films and uh, feel how satisfying they are. But there's always that slight disappointment um, that they're not Rushmore, you know, um, mm. which I, you know, which I do still think of as being just so unusual. It's just got that first movie charm, that kind of like, I'm going to set out to get you. I'm going to set out to seduce you. Not welcome to my world, which you know very well. There's a sort of defensiveness, isn't there? I think if as soon as a, a filmmaker set out their stall, it's sort of like, you know, you take me or leave me. <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm like. You know what I'm like. <laughs> I know. And, I, I, and from the other point of view, I can see how frustrating it must be for them to have people turn on them because to my, their mind, they're doing exactly the same thing they did last year. Like You what, used you to find like it anymore? funny when I joked about lobsters, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> like, you know, definitely I felt that with sort of someone like David Lynch, where you just saw people kind of get him and then get tired of him. And, but, but the guy is sort of in his own headspace and uh, you know has always been and always will be and you feel like very little changed for him but the outside world suddenly decided that all the things that they had loved they now didn't like and uh, how bizarre that must be from their point of view you know like they're still the same person you know they're, they're they're just doing what they always did you know but now no no we're bored of them so I get it from their point of view too but I yeah it's it's a curious business I mean they're they they risk self-consciousness, you know, because they're, you know, they we come along and we point out what their little tricks are and what their little trademark camera movements are or whatever it is. And they weren't aware of this before, but now they certainly are. And we've sort of ruined them to some degree. <laughs> like, you know, we've made them very conscious. And if they're any good, I think it's because they were largely unconscious in the way that they were making them, you know, or as unconscious as you can be, really. And then we come along and tell them what their peccadilloes are and thereafter they're kind of they can't escape that and i 
I think maybe we talked about this with when we talked about Tenet, but Tenet definitely felt to me like he now knew where you know what Nolan, uh, no, what Nolan-esque meant, you know. And, right, um, right. So and there's no escaping that knowledge, you know. Um, but the one thing that kind of the one thing that kind of makes filmmakers grateful again is like a big flop. And I think like not, I don't think that film was, but like the, but that's the one thing that can kind of get that all the energy that they put into seducing us with that first movie, that's the, that's the one thing that can do that. Like just, you know, it happened, I think Scorsese failed enough to then want to get hungry again and Spielberg failed once or twice and it kind of made him disciplined. And, you know, they all, you know, I, I love those movies, those kind of comeback movies where they've they screwed up and then they kind of like, they then they tighten the hatches and tighten the bolts and they make something they make Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, you know, kind of, that's, I, that's, there's no greater moment, you know, there's some, they've learned, you know, um, they've listened to what the audience had to say, and uh, they've responded, you know, so then the relationship goes on. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, like, exactly. okay, I love you again. <laughs> we, we get that sort of get back together sex. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's right. I mean, I, you know, I, that's very true. I mean, I definitely have felt that, that, you know, with, with Spielberg, I think particularly, like I've, I've fallen back in love with him many, many, many more than any other filmmaker. He, 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 it's, he's, it's, it's, I think, I mean, you know, it's strange to say that he's underrated. I mean, he is, but it's sort of, but yeah, he's kind of, he's, he's kind of kept it. He's kept reinventing himself and he's sort of kept himself hungry and he doesn't seem, he seems sort of, you know, like he still wants to kind of connect with audiences, you know, so that, that brings discipline, you know. Mm. I think he, I think he is underrated the same way sort of green grass and fresh air is underrated in that, you know, you just take it for granted. It's just there. And it's like, you don't know how wonderful it is. And, uh, you know, until, until I was talking to, um, Julie Salomon, uh, the, the devil's candy author, she said, uh, you know, um, everybody thinks it's easy to be Spielberg, but you know, there's only Spielberg's managed to do it. You know, it's yeah. not, it's not, um, there, there aren't yeah. that many directors who you can say are Spielberg, except for Spielberg, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think he kind of like, you know, he, you know, he ticks every box and he also, I think because he's sort of got that kind of naturally, he's an entertainer, he's humorous, he's got a great sense of humor, like he knows how to make these things sort of slip down, you know, um, it's very easy to kind of overlook that. But yeah, his his uh, I think kind of people will kind of look. You know, it's one of those things that once once they've uh, they'll look back, I think, and kind of realize. You know, I mean, I, was, I mean, how many movies has he done now? God, I it's it's I, I was astounded to find that Clint Eastwood had made like eighty three films. Not all of the director, obviously, but like mm. eighty three. I was looking because I just saw Cry Macho, and I was like, God, that eighty three. I mean, that's just an extraordinary. That's, is that even physically possible? You're going, um, you're going to a sort of stu old studio system sort of numbers there. You know, it's yeah, like yeah. Michael Curtiz sort of. Uh, yeah, that's right. You you can't, you don't really get those numbers now because very few, you know, directors are much sort of. It's so much harder really to make movies than it to get the funding together than it ever used to be. I believe that's true, and like the. They, you know, people think very carefully. And so you have these careers that have these stretches where they don't make a film. And it just seems such a, to me, it's boggles my mind. The idea that like Fincher had a few years where he had time to do a Netflix series, you know, and partly because funding 
for movies didn't come together. It's, right. it's just astonishing to me. Like, I find it shocking. One last blockbuster I wanted to, uh, and then I'll let you go because you've been really generous for your time, Tom. So I really appreciate it. But one last, last uh, talking about directors who, who have been sort of churning out films, especially in recent years, Ridley Scott, The Last Duel. Did you get an opportunity to see that? Yes, yeah. What was I, your take? And I felt, I mean, it, I felt the, uh, some of it was absolutely wildly entertaining. Ben Affleck is so, I mean, literally like, bolts of laughter like from, <laughs> from like from from people you know like at different points you know too like you know I, I I've seen that with Farrelly Brothers movies a little bit where like you know you're not all re re reacting as one but like suddenly you're aware that that person over there found that really funny and then this person over there so we were all laughing at slightly different things but all finding him amazingly entertaining and I loved that him in that I really did I did feel like at the risk of sort of spoilers that the three stories weren't quite different enough that the, the you know that I kind of wanted there to be more revelation um in the sense mm -hmm. of uh oh this tells a different her story needed to kind of tell me stuff I didn't know and that there was so, so that sense there was sort of overlap and I couldn't understand some of the re treads you know and I was oh, I, I, I mentally I was fast forwarding and through certain sections for that reason you know uh, but but that said you know I like Matt Damon's performance too I thought he was terrific I loved the 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 his willingness to play this kind of increasingly ugly man so yeah I, it's it's sort of I think I mean, it's it's curious. So, what did you think? I mean, I, you 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 rated the lights. If I remember rightly, you rated it highly, didn't you? you were a oh big, yeah, yeah. I went big on it. I uh, I, I was um, I was very impressed by the by the fact that this is like a Ridley Scott historical piece, and so you're uh -huh. expecting you're expecting the first third you're expecting the matt damon story because there's lots of battles there's lots of bloodshed there's lots of heroism there's a stoic masculinity that's not very good around women but that's part of his charm mm. and then and even the filmmaking is is very sort of very conventional and then when it comes to the second bit suddenly the filmmaking's a bit more fluid it, it's mm -hmm. funny it's, it's sexier and it just felt like how old is ridley scott that he's able to <laughs> to, to actually sort of be pastiche sure. himself and undercutting himself and then when you got to the final piece it felt like it was something totally different and i i, I get what you mean yeah. by it's not Rashomon. There's not a. No. He, he puts his thumb on the scale of justice and says, "Look, this is the one you. This is the truth here." Yeah, he does uh, with the subtitle. It, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I mean, even if he didn't do that, I think narratively it's obvious. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's use, obvious, yeah. use your horses for plowing, man. You know. <laughs> don't, don't. Yeah. Um, I think there is a thesis to be written on Ridley Scott and agriculture because he seems to, in the kingdom of heaven as well, he sorts out irrigation for the Arabs and works out how to, yeah. you know, how to run That's a farm. The good year, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's got like, there's a bit of a secret farmer in Ridley that he wants mm. to. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah, um, he's very good. I mean, yeah, I take, I, I love too, the, the middle section, I think that is the sort of the Affleck, where we see the most of Affleck, isn't it? We get the inside yeah. of that court and we get the audience. And that's and a section the... he wrote as well. Affleck oh, who did? Affleck, Affleck wrote who... it. Oh, did he? Because Matt Damon I mean... wrote the first section, Affleck wrote the second, and oh, really? Nicole wrote the third. Oh, I knew that she had done the third one. I didn't know that the two had divided up the second and first like that. 
yeah, I mean, I yeah, I definitely had like kind of all sorts of fears going in, thinking like Damon and Affleck together in this period movie aren't they kind of wreck it to, to, to a degree because their their own uh, chemistry is so. I mean, it's the problem of all American actors. Is that I kept expecting Jimmy Kimmel to turn up at some point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they 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 slip into period with difficulty, and um, Adam Driver is one of the few that really you can put him anywhere, and it just he totally takes root and. and so there's the Boston aspect. And I was like, how is that going to work? But the thing that Affleck realized is the same thing he did with Shakespeare in Love, which is like, I stick out a bit like a sore th- thumb, but that's exactly, I'm going to, uh, that's exactly the advantage I'm going to play. That's exactly the card I'm going to play. This guy is going to be too big. He's for the screen. I'm just going to be a pompous ass, you know? And like, and that is, was utterly thrilling. And it revealed, I felt that in those period, that those sections in the bedroom and in the dining room where they're all kind of getting drunk, I actually felt like it was, it was managing to get into period in a way that I hadn't experienced with other sort of period movies where it always remains a little bit distant. Um, you know, their mores, their sort of, their, ethic, their ethics, their sort of feelings always will go, you know, and so they tend to be very good at like, on the battle set pieces but really privately what are they like we never really know braveheart like what's going on like when they're having dinner who knows who cares like it's yeah, in the yeah, bedroom yeah. who knows who cares but with this i sort of felt like there was an intimacy like oh i know exactly who these people are and he seems to too and it's very unusual i haven't seen it before and uh, i believe it you know like it was like a you know and you sort of think there was a very there is a very strong sort of satire on the court in there that's very uh you know it's very the morality of it it's very his feel for the kind of the corruptness of it and the and the 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 sensuality of it is really something like it's very uh there's something i i I, the only person i can that's popping into my head a little bit is fellini because he kind of is doing similar things but they're not very similar at all in other regards but in that regard that sort of sense of like kind of really sort of sinfulness that you actually kind of enjoy and regret at the same time. And it's all, it's almost too obscenely entertaining and you feel almost grimy for finding him so funny. And like that is very, you know, that's quite something. And yeah, that's so interesting that he wrote that because yeah, he, Ridley Scott and they clearly had a meeting of minds you know, and, uh, and and there was some some kind of chemistry went on there. But yeah, I so that's the sort of thing that you always want to get Oscar nominated. It never gets stands a chance, really. But like Affleck should get an Oscar nominated for that. It's like, it's just, I haven't had as much fun from a from a performance in all year. Like that's my, that's the, I don't think I'll have more fun in a movie theatre than when I was laughing at Ben Affleck. In <laughs> like I, it just, you know, it was just enormously entertaining. And, and um, the last, and the last 15 minutes, the, you know, the, the duel, the last. Oh my God. It's just unbelievably oh. good. I mean, it's just, <laughs> you know, and even there you have Affleck as just, he sells the pathos of like, yeah, he's, yeah. he's just oh. in his best friend, you know. Oh my God. I mean, I can't, yeah, the, the memory of that final death is just mm. with me, like the brutality of it all. I mean, my God, I don't want to say any more really, but it's like a, yeah, it was, he, he definitely, um, he understand, like he definitely, 
I, the, the thing about those films, I love the sound. I love the, the way everything feels so heavy. The armor feels so heavy and the horses and, you just, and those swords just seem like they were taking an effort, such an effort to lift. You know, like that's the stuff where I really kind of, I feel like he's, uh, he's you know, he's perfectly, he's the perfect director for that period and the weather conditions. He loves snow. It's like a... Snow know, that kind of goes up though. I always have a, a yeah, yeah. niggle. It's the snow that's on. Where's it going? I've never seen snow uh, yeah, go yeah. up in the air. It usually falls it down. Does. In omnidirectional snow that <laughs> filmmakers do like. I, that's interesting. Like, no one likes that. That's, that snow is in the last Batman film, too, uh, when they're, they're on the steps and they're fighting. Like, it's a very, it is a very cinematic kind of snow, actually, because it's not, it's sort of, uh, it, it, it enlivens the sort of atmosphere, you know. Yeah, it fills um, the frame in, in a way that's something the frame, film, I guess, yeah. But exactly, but it doesn't feel like a trudge, you know, like through... Uh, so yeah, that's, oh, that's interesting. Atmospheric conditions. Brilliant. Okay, man. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for... for totally. Um, I'll let you get back to your... Uh, remember, uh, what is it? Veterans Day? Oh, yeah, Veterans Day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, get back to actually more like kind of entertaining my daughter for the rest of the day, so we'll see. But yeah, thank you. It's really entertaining. It was a great conversation. And uh, let me know when it goes up. Yeah, I will do. I'll, I'll edit it and send you a, a copy beforehand. And um, and yeah, I'd love to, you know, continue these conversations whenever you like, because they're, uh, yeah. they're great. Just get some new films out and come back. Yeah, nice one. Take care, Tom. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, that was uh, my conversation with Tom. Uh, I think there's nothing else to say other than thank you, Elliot Atkins, for the music, which uh, gives the podcast such a wonderful ambiance. Oh, li now listen to that. I've got uh, next door neighbours are uh, basically taking the roof off their house and um, uh, adding another one. So there's, we've got some... Uh, work work sounds i'm not sure if it'll come from on the microphone hopefully not but if it does doesn't matter so elliot atkins thanks for the music and ali howard thanks for the art and um i will uh, and every, every, thank you very much for listening okay take care powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>